Well, good morning. This morning, we want to talk out of Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 60, a rather lengthy chapter. I've titled this, The First Christian Martyr. The theme of the transitional book of Acts is the kingdom of God, specifically the process of the restoration of the uncontested rule of God over his creation. This is being accomplished through the New Testament ecclesia and will culminate in the return of Christ. In the meantime, Jesus is fulfilling his legacy by building his ecclesia, not personally, but through his agents. The foundation of this work was expressed by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this is the high point of his message, his apologetic of what was going on on that day of Pentecost. He said, in conclusion, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Without equivocation, Jesus is identified as the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. All the prophecies of the Old Testament scripture dealing with the Messiah, with the Christ, were and will be fulfilled in and through him. This includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to save and empower the New Testament ecclesia a new era, a new, a new phase in history in which God now will dwell within his people. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the focus has been on events associated with the first local expression of the New Testament ecclesia in Jerusalem. There, were, there was both the exceeding joy of life powering, the, powered by the new indwelling Holy Spirit and the stark reality of God's standard of holiness depicted in the death of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 6, the C4 principle was employed to address a food distribution problem by bringing order out of chaos, which illustrates the essence of kingdom living and that all licit work is ministry. That's a really important point. All licit work is ministry. It's to be done as ministry. And ministry means to execute the commands of another. So in the context of Christianity, Ministry is executing the commands of Christ. Now, this chapter concludes with Stephen conducting his ministry of food distribution and word and action in the Holy Spirit so powerfully that some religious leaders objected. They treated Stephen as Jesus was treated. A kangaroo court was convened. False testimony about Stephen was presented. But Stephen was so empowered by God and through the Holy Spirit that the threat of the court had no sway on him. He had complete peace in the midst of the storm. Acts chapter 7 is a continuation of Acts of chapter 6. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, faith, grace, and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people while conducting his duties as a food distributor. He was also speaking with irrefutable wisdom concerning Jesus he was surely proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom the Jews crucified, but God raised from the dead. And as the apostles did, Stephen was also surely connecting to the Old Testament messianic prophecies and pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment. He used the this as that explanation. This in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus now. Stephen was challenged to respond to the false accusations that spoke against that these these allegedly spoke against the temple and the law, but he was ready 
and delivered a cogent presentation of Jewish history. So here is Stephen's apologetic focused on establishing from scripture the, tr the truth of total depravity, the temple, the truth of the temple of God, and the truth of the Mosaic law, and the total failure of Israel to obey that law. So that's going to be his apologetic. Now, keep in mind, apologetic is defending the faith, and you only can do an apologetic once you understand the audience that you're speaking to. Today, we have very few audiences like Stephen had. Today, most of the people do not have a profound respect for the Word of God. They do not have a high view of the Word of God. And because of that, uh, you know, it's very difficult to argue from Scripture. But in the case of Stephen, there's not a problem. He's talking to an audience that, in theory, respects the Word of God. What they don't understand is that Jesus was the Christ. That key unlocked the understanding of the Old Testament and brought us into the understanding we have in the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament conceals the truth of the New Testament. The New Testament reveals that concealed truth. So Stephen is now unveiling, unfolding, unmasking this truth that's in the Old Testament about total depravity, about the temple, and about the Mosaic law. So let's hear how he handled this before the religious leaders of his day. So we're starting here in verse one of Acts chapter seven. The leaders then, the high priest asked the question, are these things true? In other words, the charges against St Stephen here are that he has made, he's claim, made some claims about the temple and the law that are disparaging, that are derogatory. And so he wants to know, the high priest wants to know, as a representative of the Sanhedrin, are these true? Brothers and sisters, Stephen replied, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So you see, he goes back immediately to Genesis chapter 12. That's his starting point. So the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land in which we, you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. That's what happened to Israel when they were, they were in Egypt. They were enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, referring to Egypt. God said, after this, they will come out and worship me in this place, referring to the promised land. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So there we have everything up to the patriarch here. Now, God then, God's plan for the people of God was sealed through the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise of, of Christ and the the work he will do, the substitutionary atonement 
the blessings that we will have based on that work of being justified by faith through Christ. So this was first revealed in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. So I'm going to read that real quickly. Then God said to Abraham, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and after they will go out with many possessions. So this speaks of their redemption, which is a picture of spiritual redemption. The story of Joseph now is told beginning in verses uh, 9 through 16. So let's just take a look at that. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over the whole household. You see, uh, Stephen skips over a lot of details about how that happened. But Joseph had a rocky road, but he finally got to be second in command in Egypt. Now, a famine and great suffering came over all Egypt, and Cana and all our ancestors could find no food. When jo Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph invited his family, Jacob, and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Stephen did not elaborate on the means by which God used to simultaneously humble Joseph and position him to become the second in command in Egypt. The injustice endured by Joseph set up the fulfillment of the prophecy given to Abraham about his people being exiled in a foreign land. This is how the people of God wound up in Egypt and how they wound up in bondage there that set up, of course, what Moses would do would come and be the, the prototype of the Redeemer. Initially, the exile was salvation from starvation, but 400 years later, the Israelites were in bondage and set up for divine redemption. So now the next section is a longer section verses uh, 17 through 36 here. This is about now about Moses and how his, he came in and played the role of the Redeemer. So continuing on, as the time for approaching, <clears throat> was approaching to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, that is the promise to deliver them out of Egypt. That, that's what we read in Genesis 15. The people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born. It looks like a very inopportune time for Moses to be born, but it was exactly the right time. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was cared for in his father's home for three months. And when he was put outside, he was put outside because they were disobeying the law. They were supposed to throw the, the baby, male babies into the Nile and they would die. But they, they basically, Moses' mother didn't do that. So she came up with a clever plan. And the clever plan was to put him in, in the little, uh, the boat, uh, symbolic of the ark, 
and uh, float him in the river when the uh, Pharaoh's daughter would be out bathing and let her find him, which she did. So he was put outside. Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. And let me just point out to you here, we normally think of being educated by Pharaoh as a very bad thing. And in many ways, it is a very bad thing. But please know, this was foundational education for Moses. But he was not ignorant of his true ancestry. He knew about the people of God. He knew from whence he had come. So he knew both his true ancestry and he learned the wisdom of the Egyptians, which is basically false wisdom, it's pseudo wisdom. And when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give him deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Moses already understood his role as the deliverer. He understood his relationship with the people of God, even here at age 40. But he, this, this vision, this understanding of his purpose will not be fulfilled for 40 more years. This is the way God works. He works in decades, centuries, millennium to do what he wants done. We each play a role in, our, in a particular time frame, in a particular place, in a particular bit part in his great story of history called the Meta Narrative. So he assumed that the people would understand that God had given, would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Very common for us people not to see what it is that God's revealing to you. That is very common. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to re reconcile them peacefully saying, men, you are my brothers. Now, why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside saying, who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian today? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. You see, Moses knew that he couldn't trust the Israelites. They did not see the call of God on his life, and they did not honor it. And so he knew he was not safe there, so he left. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him on the wilderness, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. Now here, Moses is going to play ignorant. He's going to pretend like he doesn't realize that he has been appointed by God to redeem his people. But he knows that he's known it all of his life. And he expressed it 40 years prior to the Israelites, and they rejected it. So maybe he's beginning to doubt it. Maybe he's beginning to question it. So Moses saw this amazing sight, and as he was looking to approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came and said, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. 
Moses has known this for at least 40 years, and now it's happening. It's almost unbelievable. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God has set as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. So in preparation for Moses' calling, you have to know it included 40 years of education by Pharaoh and then another 40 years of exile in the desert. Presumably, the time of exile prepared him for the pinnacle of his calling. In other words, this is probably when he really matured. So his last 40 years as the leaders and redeemer of the people of God would indeed be a reality. You see, he lived to 120. So his, his fulfillment of his real calling doesn't happen until he's 80 years old. Now, most of us, we, uh, we, we, we struggle with that because we want to know our calling right now so we can go do whatever it is God wants to do. Well, God has not only a calling defined for each one of us, he has a time frame and a process and steps that we go through, relationships that we have, experiences that we learn from, and most importantly, we grow in our ability to know him and walk with him. The setup for redemption of the people of God meant that it was time for the Redeemer to appear. Moses was born at a time when the Egyptians feared the great number of Israelites and used infanticide to reduce the population. And now Moses, 80 years later, has not only survived, but he has been prepared to be God's agent to redeem his people. Now let's go on to uh, verse 37 through verse 43. This is Israel's rebellion against God. This reveals the true nature of total depravity, one of the major themes of the Old Testament that Paul so eloquently explains in Romans 3 is the principle, the truth of total depravity. Man in and of itself will never and can never do enough good works to be righteous before God. It is impossible. There's no one who seeks God, no one, not, uh, no, not one. There's no one who is righteous and holy before God, no, not one. So Acts 7 now is going to make this point before these religious leaders who are very proud of their ability to obey the law. And basically, uh, Stephen's got to tear it apart here. All right, so he, he, reading verse 37, he says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus was a prophet like Moses, not in that Moses sinned, not in Moses' mistakes and errors, but in Moses' good points, in his obedience to God, in his role as the redeemer of God's people, in his role as leading God's people. That's, that's the prophet that Jesus was like. He's the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us, living oracles. The law was built, written on the Ten Commandments, but they are, are, are established of stone, but they're living oracles. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. You see, they promised in Exodus chapter 19, they said when, when the proposition was made to them by God through Moses, Moses told them, that God says, if you will obey me, I will be your God, you'll be my people. 
and they said, we will do it. And here Stephen is pointing out that our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. They were unwilling and therefore they didn't. They rebelled against Moses and they rebelled against God. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. They started worshiping the creation instead of the creator, which is the classic error that humans make. We worship the creator, creation, not the creator. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered the sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave him up gave them up to the worship of the stars of heaven, or as is written in the book of the prophets, house of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You too, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephim, the images that you made to worship, so I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." You see, their judgment for idolatry, for rejecting God, for disobedience to God, would be bondage. Bondage to the oppressive kings of Syria and Medo and Persia. Though the, God, though the Lord sent re relief and redemption to Israel, they were unwilling to fully submit to God. Rebellion revealed idolatry and humanism. They worshiped the creation instead of the creator and were judged first by the 40-year wilderness journey and ultimately by exile in Babylon. Moses was a prophet and redeemer who was a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Just as the Israelites refused to listen to Moses, so Jesus experienced the same rejection at his first advent. Today, people still seek to worship the creation instead of the creator. And according to Paul in Romans chapter one, God's judgment on people that suppress the truth of God revealed in creation in unrighteousness, when that suppression happens, like it happens through the theory of evolution, it happens through the practice of abortion, it happens through homosexuality and redefinition of marriage, all kinds of ways we're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. God's judgment is unnatural sexual desires and deranged thinking. And if you don't think we have deranged thinking today, just look at things like defund the police. That is an example of deranged thinking. These traits, that is the rise of sexual immorality, the rise of deranged thinking, are increasingly evident in the world in general and in the US in particular. So let's go on to the verses 44 through 50. And this is now focusing in on truth about the temple. God's real dwelling place is not a physical structure. Stephen, Stephen spoke, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and when Joshua brought it in, when they dis dispossessed the nations that, that God drove out before them until the days of, of David, he found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the, for the God of Jacob. 
it was Solomon rather who built him a, a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all of these things? That is a rhetorical question with the implied answer, yes, his hand made all of these things. You see, physical structures do not really define the dwelling place of God. The Jews viewed the temple as the dwelling place of God, the physical temple. But Stephen, citing Isaiah 66, 1, explained that the view, true temple of God is the people of God. And we see numerous references, particularly in 1 Corinthians, about, about the people of God being the, now the temple of God. The physical temple was simply a shadow of the reality of God's people in the New Testament who would be his spiritual temple. The imagery of a throne and footstool is a combinative language to communicate transcendent truth to finite material beings. God is not confined by space and time. Rather, he created space and time to provide a context for humans to serve as his ruling agents. The Apostle Paul stated the same idea in his apologetic uh, in Athens in Acts chapter 17. We know that Paul was present when Stephen articulated his apologetic. Perhaps Paul learned this truth from Stephen. Now, going on here to chapter 7, verses 51 and 53. So this is a, just more sealing of the reality of how we, in our depraved state, we resist the Holy Spirit. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. These are circumcised people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You can see he's, he's not looking at the physical. He's looking at the spiritual dynamic. They're stiff-necked people. They have necks. They can turn their necks. But no, spiritually, they're stiff-necks. They're not willing to turn to follow the Lord. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. When you resist the Word of God, you resist God's people. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. It doesn't mean that they haven't obeyed it some. It means they have been imperfect in their ability to obey the law. You see, God requires perfection, complete perfection, and they have failed. Uh, this is going to make them really mad. But we have to understand generational transfer, both good and bad, is a principle of God's universe. The Jewish people had a heritage of rebellion against God, which is resisting the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Jewish people are simply those people who are called out from all the peoples of the earth, called out to be God's people, and the Old Testament is a revelation of their attempts to be God's people. They totally failed, and in their failure, they revealed the nature of all mankind, which is called total depravity, total inability to do enough righteous deeds to meet God's standards. We can never self-save. We can never 
work our way into acceptance with God. We need a savior. We must have a savior. All right, so let's conclude here with verses uh, 54 through 60 here. Um, when they heard these things, that is these religious leaders now are, have, have had enough, enough of what Stephen has to say. They were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears and together rushed against him. What a picture of rebellion against God and his revelation. That is what we all have a propensity to do is to yell when we hear truth. We can't handle the truth. We cover our ears. We try to block it. And then we rush against anyone that projects truth. And you will see this in life. Anytime you're trying to, to help people come to Christ and know Christ and go deeper in Christ, you will see this kind of response. They drag him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would be eventually known as Paul. And, and while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. Stephen's persecution was without doubt. The Jews absolutely unloaded on him. Stephen was filled with peace through the whole episode. It's so startling to see how he handled this. He knew this was coming. He knew death was coming, and yet he could look up and see the Lord, and he could be at peace, and he could pray a prayer that had nothing to do with him and had everything to do, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, just like the Lord had prayed when he died. It, take great, it took great maturity to get there. I think most of us would be, uh, be very, very challenged to be able to respond to a situation like Stephen had to face the way he faced it. He faced it in peace, total peace, total focus on Christ and able to even pray a prayer of blessing on those that were, that were killing him. Stephen died thinking of others, not himself. He did pray the prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What a great, great prayer of faith, great prayer of, of, uh, of trust in him, that knowing that, that the anchor of his life, the foundation of his life is indeed Jesus. And now he prays a prayer of, of healing and mercy for those that are killing him. So this is Stephen's apologetic. Stephen's apologetic to the religious leaders at, at live at that time, apologetic that most of us will never have to give because we won't find people like this. We'll find people that by and large don't know the Lord and don't have a high view of scripture. And they may be in the context of Christian communities. In fact, I'm increasingly you know, vexed as I talk to people in my Christian community 
to find out how little they understand about scripture and even worse, how little they regard scripture. I guess the fact that they understand so little tells me they don't have high regard for it. And so our apologetics are gonna be a bit different, but still we can learn from Stephen the power of what it looks like to be truly mature in Christ, to be really grounded in the word, to really be in the power of the spirit, to really learn to do what you're called to do, in his case, food distribution in the power of the spirit. And that's when you're most likely gonna see signs and wonders and you're gonna have the ability to articulate the truth at a level that will be irrefutable. So that's a great picture for all of us to learn from. So let's talk, let's talk about a theological point. Let's talk about suffering martyrdom. The English word martyr is a derivative of the Greek word martus, which means witness. A witness is someone who can testify to the veracity of something. In the context of Christianity, the idea of a witness also includes a willingness to die to bear witness to that truth if need be. Commonly, professing Christians think about being a witness is, is simply sharing this, their story of accepting Christ. But this, at best, is only part of the idea conveyed in Scripture. At worst, it's a total distortion. Jesus told his apostles that they would be witnesses, that is, martyrs of him in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They would bear witness to his identity and resurrection and its implications. Their witness would include and must include a willingness to die. Die for this truth. Die for standing for Christ, if necessary. In other words, bearing witness was not about sharing their story, rather sharing Jesus's story. To share his story, one must be humble, submitted, and teachable under the Lordship of Christ, just like the first apostles and Stephen were. They were humble, submitted, teachable men. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, faith, grace, and power. He performed great signs and wonders among the people and presumably while conducting his duties as a, a food distributor. Can you imagine meeting a food distributor that was, was doing what they're doing full of the Holy Spirit? I'm sure it would be a most memorable experience was something so notable you would never forget it. His witness of Jesus was so irrefutable that the religious leaders had to set up a kangaroo court with false witnesses to try to stop him, but they could not stop him. He would not be intimidated. His relationship with Jesus was so profound that he stood before the Sanhedrin in complete peace and delivered an irrefutable apologetic based on the divine meta-narrative recorded in scripture. Yes, yes, his apologetic was a story, a story of the, of the meta-narrative a story we must be very familiar with and very capable of sharing with anyone that would really bend the knee to scripture. The focus of his message was to establish from scripture the truth of total depravity, the truth of the temple of God as being a spiritual temple, not primarily a physical temple, and the truth of the Mosaic law as a standard of righteousness that could never be obeyed because of the fallen condition of mankind. And for this testimony, he was martyred. Stephen's martyrdom is an example of suffering for righteousness, willing to give his life to fulfill his purpose and clearly recognizing that everything happens for a reason. He was so peaceful that the situation in no way vexed him. Could we, could we respond this way? What if something similar to this happened to us? 
It's the same thing that happened to Jesus. He had a kangaroo court, false testimony, a crucifixion. The only man that should never have died was never under the curse of death after the fall, voluntarily gave up his life so that we could be resurrected from the dead to eternal life. You see, that's the beauty of what Christianity offers. It offers hope for eternity. Stephen modeled maturity in Christ, living for Christ, living in Christ, living because of Christ, living to serve Christ. It was all about Christ. And the essence of being a true witness for Jesus was a willingness to die for Christ in complete peace. Wow. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal level of maturity. Personally, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone that comes close to reflecting the maturity that Stephen displayed on that day. So let's talk about an application. I've titled the application, Living Under the Lordship of Christ. Stephen was a food distributor. He was a marketplace man. He was one of seven men appointed to solve the food distribution problem experienced by the New Testament Ecclesia. This man was called and commissioned to, to his task based on the C4 principle. Of the seven, Stephen was apparently the leader. It was said of him that he was full of the Holy Spirit, faith, grace, and power. He also performed signs and wonders and was irrefutable as an orator. When brought before the kangaroo court and falsely accused, he was so peaceful that his accusers saw him as one who had the face of an angel. In other words, the face of an angel is kind of seen here as something as someone totally at peace, joy, contentment, and bright and shining, reflecting Christ. And when he was martyred, he was not fearful because he was able to pray for forgiveness for his enemies. He knew where he was going. He was secure in Christ. There was no question in his mind that he would be with Christ. How could Stephen display peace in the midst of the persecution? Only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in him. Of the first Christian community, it was said that they unified, they were unified in, in heart and mind, enabling them to think selflessly about financial resources. That is, they were able to use financial resources to support the will of God. Imagine having the ability that anytime you had a financial decision to make, your first question was, what is the will of God? What does he want done? Whether you're going to the store, whether you're making a decision about a purchase for clothes or a car or a house, or deciding on what service provider to use for some, some purpose, or you're looking at a need in the body of Christ, are you asking the question, What's in it for God? What does he want done first? Or is it all about me and what I want to do? You know, Stephen had a level of maturity that reflected the mandate that the Apostle Paul would later give to the Colossians when he told them that every word and action should be performed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, the ability to live at this level of maturity in Christ facilitates metaphysical awareness and supernatural activity. You see people today running around looking for signs and wonders uh, that I think probably immediately tells you they're immature. Because the people that can really do it never have to look for it because they do it because of their maturity. It just happens, God works in and through them. It's the immature ones that are running around talking about signs and wonders. 
The Jews sought signs and wonders. The Greeks sought wisdom. You see, God is both. He does signs and wonders of wisdom, but he does that through the people that grow up and mature in him. Stephen demonstrated maturity in Christ in his life and death. Though there is desire today to experience signs and wonders, there seems to be little empowerment. This, this intimates that the major, major, maturity level of the Christian today is not anywhere close to the level that Stephen and the first century apostles had. Therefore, it seems that the paradigm of Christianity today, which is largely defined by the Great Awakening thinking, does not produce disciples who can live and die as Stephen did. He clearly demonstrated the truth of Jesus at a level that we rarely see today, if ever. If you truly want to live, you have to learn to die. Stephen was a model of how to live and die. He lived under the Lordship of Christ. In other words, he died to himself so that he would have eternal life. He lived to fulfill the purpose of God in his life and was divinely empowered to so live. He was never intimidated by those who opposed him. He died at peace, praying for his enemies. Along the way, he was empowered to speak irrefutable truth and perform confirming signs and wonders. He lived solely to do the will of God according to the ways of God for the glory of God. He aligned with his C4 life purpose, served as a powerful witness of, for Christ, and contributed to efficacious evangelism. You remember it was said in Acts 6, after they got things in order with the C4 workers fixing the food distribution problem, that even some of the religious leaders, the most, most ardent opponents against Christ, became obedient to the faith. That was the power of kingdom work, the power of maturity at work. We need to learn how to live this way. And if we can learn to live this way, we will have the grace to bear fruit that, Jesus, that Stephen bore and that Jesus bore. May the Lord give us grace to so live. In Jesus' name, amen.